Some people were made to follow the instructions. We were made to make our own. To always measure twice and never cut corners. Unless, of course, we've got a compound miter saw. Northern Tool and Equipment is a problem solver's paradise. There's nothing we can't find, fix, or figure out together. We're made for this. Start solving your projects today at northerntool.com. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Well, hello and welcome back. I hope you're well. I am just back from doing a run of gigs in the UK with Sarah Milken and I had a ball. It was amazing. It actually felt like, oh my God, we're back. Yes, things are up and running again. Still uh, quite a way to go in Ireland, but um, yeah, it was very nice to do the week shows in the UK. I've also been busy making a new weekly podcast, which will be coming out in September. Uh, I think you're going to like it, but I will tell you more about that very, very soon. But don't worry, I'll still be making episodes of Fascinated and I have some very cool guests coming. I'm very excited. I'm doing some Fascinated recordings next week and uh, yeah, impressive guests. Now, if you like this show, be sure to subscribe wherever you downloaded this and then you won't miss an episode. And if you would like to support the show, you can become a member of Headstuff Plus for as little as €5 a month. And in return, you will get fascinated bonus content and also... And also you will be able to access bonus content for all of the other shows on the Headstuff Network, including this new one, Fad Camp. Fad Camp is a comedy podcast about the ridiculousness of fad diets and diet culture, hosted by me, Grace Mulvey. And me, Connor Dowling. If you have a body of any kind, chances are you've crossed paths with at least one of the bizarre diet trends we cover in our show. And between me and Connor, we have done nearly every fad diet there is. Juice cleansing. Fasting. The potato diet. Which is actually a real diet, by the way, and we don't recommend it. So join us as we try to make sense of the madness that is diet culture. Find Fad Camp everywhere you get your podcasts and make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Fad Camp Podcast. Hello, you are very welcome to another episode of Fascinated. Now, when I first started this podcast, I made a list of people that I would love to talk to. Sadly, some of these people are no longer with us. Elaine Stritch and Dolores O'Riordan were right at the top, and so was the person that we'll be talking about today, Victoria Wood. Let's do it, let's do it, do it while the mood is right. I'm feeling appealing, I've really got an appetite. I'm on fire with desire I could handle half the tenors in a male voice choir Let's do it, let's do it tonight but he said, Victoria Wood was my favourite comedian She was a comedian, actress, writer, musician, composer and pianist and she is very much part of the fabric of the UK and of comedy in general She is completely deserving of her status as a national treasure and as one of the world's most beloved comedians she began her career as a playwright and she wrote and performed topical comedy songs on the TV show That's Life. My God. If her bum were a bungalow, she'd never get a mortgage on it. <laughs> She's let it drop. I'll say. Of a man nicker, she needs a safety net. But it was her collaboration with Julie Walters on the sketch show Wooden Walters that catapulted her into stardom and spawned the iconic sketch show As Seen on TV, which featured the much-loved Acorn Antiques series. 
But you know, hospitals are in chaos now. I mean, I had some x-rays done, and there was a mix-up at the lab, and what came back was some photos of an Alsatian lying down in front of a bungalow. Her stand-up tours went from cult following to record-breaking success, including a phenomenal run of shows at the Royal Albert Hall, where she holds the record for the longest run of shows by a female headline artist, and also for the longest run of shows by a comedian. She wrote a number of movies for television and in 2007 she won a BAFTA Best Actress Award for her role in Housewife 49, which she had also written. She had first been nominated for the Best Actress Award in 1995 with her film Pat and Margaret. Oh, that is so good. In 2005, she did one of my favourite things that has ever happened. She reunited the cast of Acorn Antiques for a West End run in Acorn Antiques the Musical, a musical that she had penned based on the sketches. It was glorious. Victoria Wood paved the way for modern comedians and her legacy as one of the most diverse, talented and celebrated comedians is a reputation that was earned rather than bestowed. Victoria Wood passed away on the 20th of April 2016. The breadth of the body of work she left behind speaks for itself. As her longtime friend and collaborator Julie Walters said when she died, the loss is incalculable. In 2020, journalist Jasper Rees published an absolutely brilliant official biography of Victoria Wood called Let's Do It. And if you are a fan of Victoria's work, this is an absolute must read. I've read it and I've listened to the audiobook. And now that it's been updated and released in paperback, I cannot wait to read it again. I spoke to Jasper all the way back in December as part of the Cat Laughs podcast festival in Kilkenny. And it was such a fantastic chat. And he is such a brilliant, insightful person. And he is a fund of Victoria Wood information. This is the fantastic Jasper Reese talking about the incredible Victoria Wood. Hi there, Garode. Hi, Great how are you? Um, I'm, wa- I'm well, thank you. How is my lighting looking? I'm, uh, it's, uh, uh, I don't have my own lighting designer, it's just me. You've just been described as a young Dylan Moran, so I think that uh, you should feel very good about that. <laughs> I bet I'm older than him. Uh, anyway. you, would, you would never know. You'd never know, Jasper. Um, I am delighted to talk to you because I've just finished your book. I'm delighted that I uh, have finished it because we spoke yesterday and I was determined to get it finished. But uh, it's a big undertaking because I have it here and it's 600 pages. <laughs> um, it is a big... Well. It was a big life. I was going to say, Garo, the, the actual the actual text does stop at page about a five hundred and six or something. So uh, the rest of it is, you know, d- I don't want people to think, oh God, it's a six hundred page book. It's a five hundred page book, really. But with it lots is, of notes and index. It is absolutely incredible from start to finish. Uh, I hadn't realised that when Victoria Wood died, because like, I, I described myself there in the intro as a Victoria Wood anorak, and I definitely was, but I didn't realise that when she died, I, I think I stopped watching. I checked out for a little while. Um, because obviously it's incredibly sad that she's no longer with us. Um, But just reliving all the stuff through your book, it was absolutely incredible. How did you first get to know Victoria? Well, I'm an arts journalist, and uh, my my regular beat was writing for British broadsheet arts pages. And uh, I was actually not for a newspaper, but for the Radio Times, was commissioned to write a piece about the, the second... 
a series of dinner ladies. So I went along and I met her and I met all the cast and uh, found her. I mean, it was wonderful meeting her. She was, I was expecting to meet the person you see on the telly and I met someone completely different, um, which, is, uh, which is really the story of the book. The fact that there were two Victoria Woods. There was a one that you, you paid to see or you switched on your television to see. <clears throat> and then there was the real person. Who, and, who, and they were very different. I had, because to be honest with you, I had absolutely no idea of the, the person that she was. One of the things that I was very surprised by was how genuinely driven she actually was. Because she always presented this character. Uh, you know, you kind of felt that she was somebody who a lot of fortuitous things had happened to. And she'd had a lot of luck. But actually, she worked... Her work ethic was just unbelievable for a comedian because we can be spectacularly lazy. <laughs> well, I would argue she certainly wasn't lazy, but I would argue that she uh, she made her own luck. And there there was a a long period where she was, you know, sort of like wading through mud trying to get uh, a decent break. Or she did get good breaks on the television uh, in the mid seventies. Uh, in I mean, there, there was in ITV had this thing, this talent show called. New Faces, which she, of which she won a heat in 1974, and she thought she was made. She thought that was that was uh, going to be the you know, it was a it was a sort of shortcut to stardom. But she actually just had these these sort of comic and slightly wry songs, which um, which didn't really have an audience. She didn't have an act to sell them with. She she had no confidence in front of an audience. So uh, it took her four years to actually get her foot on the second rung of the ladder and that was when she was doing a review show with uh, in shepherd's bush in london and on that show she met julie walters and that changed absolutely everything but uh to go back to your question about her being a hard worker yes she was she did work incredibly hard i think she did make her own luck because and she she had to work hard and she had to to go even further back to the start of your question that she um she was very driven because as a... Uh, um, she was the vanguard, I the think, only, as well. As the only female comedian, um, she, uh, you know, she sort of had to invent, not only herself, but she had to invent a kind of template of what a female comedian would be because no one knew what that was. Were you surprised when you started to go through the archive of how much she had accomplished? Because when you see it... She was always Victoria Wood. Like it, it was, there was never. She always just brought herself to all of these different projects, and you could see her in the drama that she she wrote. You could see her in the music that she wrote. It was always um, she was the label. Um, were you surprised by how many different things that she had? Because there was the stuff that we knew about, and then there was so much stuff that she, you know, she would write film scripts and just put them in the bottom drawer. When you got access well, to the archive, were you surprised? Yeah, I, I, I mean, the archive uh, that I had access to, because this is an authorised biography and, and her estate representing her children said, go on, fill your boots. There are boxes and boxes, uh, which I methodically worked through. And yes, there were some wonderful hidden gems in there. So the thing that I was surprised by was not the stuff that we know about, the stuff, because I, I had a pretty good handle on her career um, and, you know, the the stuff that had been... Uh, sort of shown on television and and I I knew pretty much everything about the progress of her stand-up career and you know I'm I'm old enough to remember her being on That's Life in 1976 as a, a guest on Esther Ranson's show so uh, 
So no, that wasn't the surprise. The surprise was by quite how much there was sitting in the archive that was also wonderful, that had not been seen. Principally, uh, she overwrote very diligently and deliberately when she was creating As Seen on TV in 1984. Uh, where the, she had this commission to write this sketch show and she'd had a sketch show previously on Granada in earlier in the 80s uh, with Julie Walters called Wooden Walters, which uh, some people watching may remember. And uh, it it was, you know, what one might call good in parts. A lot of it was great, but there was no slack in it at all. She didn't overwrite. So everything she wrote had to go in that show. And there was stuff she regretted being in there and she thought she could have done better. So when she did As Seen on TV, she wrote much more than she needed. And I actually went through just the other day and did an inventory of the number of sketches, some of them tiny, some of them, you know, 10 pages uh, of stuff that she wrote for the two series of As Seen on TV and the Christmas special, which uh, she didn't use. And it amounts to about 80 sketches. Wow. So that's 80 bits of Victoria Wood unseen on TV. And she did the same thing for all of her other Christmas specials. She overwrote, you know, their their. I mean, the, one of the shows that I think is an absolute masterpiece of hers is Christmas show she did in 2000 called Victoria Wood with all the trimmings. Oh, yeah. Uh, with Anne Whittacombe. She, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's a fantastic... There's, there's, there's a brilliant um, spoof of Jane Austen in that and of Charles Dickens uh, and, and a, a superb spoof of um, Brief Encounter. But she decided as she was taking the mickey out of um, movies more in that show that the various TV spoofs that she wrote for that thing, she decided not to use. So they're sitting there again, unfilmed. Some of them huge. I mean, pages and pages and pages things. She, 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 she really had written enough to do another, uh, another Christmas special the following year, which she did briefly flirt with doing before deciding to do something else. So, so that is a surprise that the archive is just absolutely, you know, it's, it's a goldmine of, of, uh, of unseen, things including as you referred to she wrote she did she did attempt her, her last unfulfilled ambition was to to break it break onto the big screen and she did attempt two or three uh, uh film scripts and there was one sitting there she was hoping to make when she fell ill in 2015 with, with possibly the greatest title uh that victoria wood has ever come up with cakes on a train which cakes on I a just, train yeah <laughs> i, I mean, would have been first in the queue to see that <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, you know, who, who knows? Maybe, maybe the estate will decide to uh, get someone else to complete it and film it. I, d I don't know. It's 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 uh, the first draft I read, and it's very funny. Uh, that would be amazing. Cakes on a Train. She, Cakes on a Train was she came up with that title. She had previously been on. I'm, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue as a guest about three years three years earlier. And you know, in that show, they have this game where you have to think of film titles to be played at you know whatever and the film title was cozy cozy film titles to be you know shown in a, a care home or something i can't remember what the category was and she came up with cakes on a train and that joke just this was how victoria worked that she thought of a good joke and it would sit there and she wouldn't um she wouldn't allow it to rest and she thought obviously that that is a great title for a movie it's interesting because uh, victoria wood as seen on tv well it was a you know, it was a reimagining of, I suppose, Wooden Walters because Ju Julie Walters featured so heavily, but it, it had Victoria's name on it. But the very interesting thing about that is she, throughout a lot of her work, she cast herself so often uh, as a sidekick 
Yeah. Um, well, that's I, because that was really because when she met uh, Julie uh, in 1978 on that show I mentioned before, she suddenly realised that she could be funny with someone else, that she had found someone who had such funny bones uh, that she just wanted to write for her. And uh, and so the first, you know, that sketch that she wrote for that show, and then uh, she wrote three dramas for Granada, the most famous of which is Talent, uh, uh, really for Julie. Uh, Julie couldn't do the stage version of Talent, but 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 Victoria just so identified with her that she even called the character that she wrote for Julie, she called her Julie. Uh, and um, so, yeah, with Julie and then with other people that she wrote for, she just so admired their comic talents that she wrote for them specifically. Uh, you know, Celia Imrie and Duncan Preston are the most obvious ones, but then she found Susie Blake, who who played the continuity announcer, you know, that snooty Southern woman. Yeah. When I've been on TV and she wrote... Uh, um, Kitty for Patricia Routledge. Uh, so and so it went on. She, you know, she loved Jim Broadbent and liked writing stuff for him as well. Although he was a less regular member of her ensemble. So, uh, so yeah, she she didn't necessarily want to be at the centre of her shows. And she even told Jeff Posner, who was the producer director of As Seen on TV, who she worked with very solidly for more than fifteen years. She said, I, I don't want to, um, I don't really want to be in these sketches much. And he said, you have to, it's you. Your name's on us. Uh, and so she would, she was often playing the feed for Julie. Uh, if you look at sketches with her and Celia or her and Duncan, she's not playing the feed. Uh, she, she gave herself the, uh, the plums in those sketches. Yeah. But even, even when she did all the trimmings in 2000, she was saying to the young producer of that, she was saying, oh, I don't want, don't want to be in these. And, 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 and she said exactly the same thing. It's you they want. Yeah, you're on the tin. It's, it, it's quite interesting that she, um, she was so exacting. I mean, you knew, you knew from the, the sketches, because I always found that the sketches, there were so many catchphrases that came out of them. You know, and that you would hear them once. And for example, the line about the prawns, never touch prawns, they hang around sewage outlets, treading waters with their mouths open. I don't ever remember learning that, but I know every time I have prawns, I think of it. (laughs) Um, She, but she was very, when she wrote something, she was very exacting about the way she wanted it said. And there was no room for improvisation, which I always thought of her as the head of a repertory company that everyone kind of got their line in. But that wasn't the case at all, was it? No, not, not in the slightest. Uh, and that became, you know, most apparent when she was making Dinner Ladies at the end of the 90s, when she worked incredibly hard to, you know, write her first sitcom. She, 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 she would stay up all night uh, writing and rewriting uh, scripts. And, and she insisted that, that, so they would start rehearsing on the Monday and by Wednesday they had to be off the book and know it. And there was uh, a script, um, uh, the person in charge of the scripts there, and she would make an, a note uh, on, Vi- on Victoria's instruction of when anyone got a word wrong or a line wrong. Uh, because Victoria, you know, it's kind of almost a cliche, but Victoria thought of her scripts as music. And, and if, uh, if, you, if you said a wrong, a wrong word, it was, it, she thought of it as a bum note. She says, you know, if you write an F sharp, well, you write an E flat and someone gives you an F sharp, it's really annoying. And, uh, you know, she knew how the jokes worked and she was tough about policing that. 
and especially when she became a theatre director later on, uh, that uh, she was she wasn't she didn't have any of that kind of coaxing diplomacy that 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 can or should go with the role of being a theatre director. When she would say to people, "No, don't say it like that. Say it like this." Theatre directors don't normally do that, but she had written it as well, and she'd written the songs. And so when she said, "Do it like this," it was because she knew she knew what would work in front of an audience and what would get the laugh. And everyone I spoke to said, however traumatised they may have been by, by yeah. <laughs> uh, these encounters, uh, and some of them were a bit traumatised, uh, they said, well, she was always right, always. It's interesting because there's a, you have a great quote in your book from her um, that whenever she heard that somebody was described as difficult to work with, she always would say, well, that's somebody that's trying to get it right. So yes. I think... She probably saw her, you know, she saw herself in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have nothing to add to that. That, that was, uh, and it was always women. I think she was probably thinking of women who are, who are known as difficult. Because okay. she did feel as a, I mean, she was absolutely a pioneer. Of being the first woman in British television who was in charge of her own work. Yeah, and, and she became event television. Yeah. Yeah. And she, you know, she didn't, she wanted, if, if people were going to slag her off for it, uh, then she wanted uh, at least to be slagged off the work that she had done rather than work that, as she said on the third of those Granada dramas, which she wasn't quite as happy with as the other two. Uh, she wasn't actually in it, but she said, you know, if people want to lay into me for this, at least I feel it's not, you know, it's not my, she wasn't happy with the director on that. Um, I'm being indiscreet there, but uh, uh she she was uh she, she her feeling was well at least I, I i feel i've done everything i can do and if people slag me off it's not my fault i'm paraphrasing very badly but uh, <laughs> and, I, and i did put it in the book actually so i'm not being indiscreet is uh, it's interesting because i didn't realize and it's only i mean when you listen to her songs i found you always listen to the words but if you listen to like the constructs of the melodies and stuff like that and her piano playing which was unbelievable. I mean, Let's Do It, which is the most famous song. If you actually, you know, step away from the euphoria of listening to that, like there's about five key changes in that song. Like yeah. she, her musicianship was, like she was very practiced and very, she was a great musician. Um, do you think, I always think that comedy is like insurance in that uh, nobody ever dreams of going into it, but a lot of people that had other dreams end up there. <laughs> uh, sorry to all the comedians listen to this <laughs> but I do, I do think that's the case I mean I do think a lot of people that originally wanted to be actors or originally wanted to be singer-songwriters end up uh, doing sketches or, or writing comedy songs do you think that I mean she describes herself as not she, do, she didn't have a lot of confidence um, did she what did she originally want to be a musician and found comedy um, originally she wanted to be famous. Okay. Uh, she did, she gave an interview in the South Bank show in 1996, where she just said, "I remember sitting in my garden, in uh, in the, her first family home, uh, in when she was about four in Bury in Lancashire, and just thinking, I want to be famous. So uh, so that was her first goal, and she did kind of cling to that throughout." Uh, 
and then you know she uh, at that point she was enjoying being as the youngest of the family uh, being a kind of little mini entertainer she would pull faces for all of her older siblings and her parents and they would applaud her and they'd say go on go and do another one and she'd run into the kitchen and run out again and pull another face so she she I remember once when I was interviewing her she said uh, uh, I, I felt a kind of it, it it reached down and touched something very deep inside me. That that thing that that feeling of audience appreciation gave me. So she knew that as a very young girl, um, and then of course she she developed her as you say she developed her musical talent. She she was she she spent her teenage years pretty much on her own, living in this lonely house on a hill. She sat in a room practicing the piano for you know years and years. So she became incredibly proficient as a pianist uh, and making making up her own songs she was at school she was already writing you know sort of musical pantomimes and school shows uh so yeah she was a much better pianist than than i think one or two people give her some one or two when i was writing about acorn antiques the musical i spoke to the musical director um gareth valentine who had been introduced to her by trevor nunn who was directing the show and he said he went round to her house and she played him all the songs and he said lyrically they were brilliant Musically, they were derivative. Uh, and he was a little bit, I felt he was a little bit dismissive of them. And and actually, they were deliberately de um, derivative because she was pastiching a whole bunch of musical styles for that show. But she wrote... It sounds like he wasn't I, in on the joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe at that point. But but uh, she wrote something quite close to, I actually lost count at the end, but I I did try and keep a tally but she wrote damn close to 200 songs in her life, which is, and that's a similar tally to the Beatles. Uh, and they're not all brilliant. Lyrically, they're all absolutely, you know, sort of on the button. And some of them musically, I think I'm not a musician, but you know, I've, I've learned an instrument or two, but, but uh, uh, she's, they strike me as being, you know, inventive, but certainly, uh, I don't know about harmonically invented, but melodically, I think that they're, you know, she wrote wonderful catchy tunes. And she she actually, she I mean, her husband, Jeffrey Durham, told me that towards the end of her time as a stand-up, she was desperate to kind of get rid of the songs from the shows because she felt that she felt that they were, I don't know, she wanted to be able to go on just as a stand-up and not have to go and walk back and forth from the piano. But the songs she was writing, even at the end of that time as a stand-up, I, you know, I think were absolutely brilliant. The, I, I, some of the songs were absolutely genius, but one of the mm. things that I was always very, very curious about, and it's something that doesn't happen in comedy a lot, was sometimes she would just throw in a song that was... It, it would throw the audience, you know, things like um, the uh, love song or the baby in the litter bin or Andrea... Or those songs that would just actually break your heart in the middle of a comedy show, um, which that's not something that comedians really do. You don't really get to see that kind of melancholy side of a comic on stage. But it was something that is really, it's really identifiable in her work. But I don't know anywhere else that it happens. Well, I think that, I mean, that one of those songs you mentioned, Love Song, was one of the songs she wrote for that show at the Bush Theatre, uh, which Julie Walters was also in. And she was writing songs inspired by musical stories on the theme of death, actually. And it's a very beautiful song about a husband who whose wife has died in hospital. And it's about trying to deal with the fact that uh, he is now a widower 
and that he never really told her that he loved her. And it has this beautiful opening where, where he says, made, made your breakfast this morning like any old day, then I remembered and threw it away. And um, she had a great facility for writing those songs. She absolutely was in touch with, with uh, her melancholy side. Um, you know, her, her, her writing was, she had great access to joy in her work and great access to pathos. Um, and a lot of her songs are in that style. And she actually, once she went on, started to develop a stand-up act, she realized in when she, she and um, Jeffrey Durham were trying to work out how they would create this show. And what she what they came to realize was that if she wanted to have, or what, what Jeffrey told her actually was, if you're doing a two halves of a show, which is very rare in those days, it was it was still new for people to go on and do a whole in the evening and have an interval in the middle. So obviously at the end of the of the of the evening you want to go off to a rousing uh, reception. Uh, but you you want to get off at the end of the first half in a slightly different way, or at least she did, and he encouraged her in that. And so they decided to deploy um, Love Song at the end of the first half. So she would play this very downbeat song, and then the lights would drop. And so she didn't have to build to a climax twice. She only had to build to a climax once. And she carried on with those other songs you've mentioned, Andrea, uh, was one of them and the, the, the song about a, a mother who leaves a, again based on a news story about a mother who leaves her child in a, in a litter bin um, because she doesn't know what to do with this unwanted child. Um, she closed the first half of an uproarious comedy show with that <laughs> and people didn't quite know what to make of it because they, 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 they actually laughed. I mean, it was very brave. And, and then they realised, oh, this is another of Victoria's sad songs. Um, so, so yeah, she was, she was brilliant at writing those songs as well. And as seen on TV has several of them. Uh, yeah. It's not all uproarious comedy. It has some melancholy songs as well. One of the things I'm always curious about, uh, and, uh, it, it, it's not mentioned in your book because, um, it doesn't, it doesn't really uh, hit on any, any professional bitterness, but there was a part of me that I always wondered when The Office came out, uh, and was such a worldwide success was... Victoria may be pissed off because it was something that she had done 20 years ago and never really got the credit for um, with her mock documentaries and as seen on TV. Um, and I always just, I always wondered uh, how, I know what the she felt that. about that. Sorry, sorry, Garoud, I missed the question, sorry. Uh, I always I'm wondered what she, felt, what she felt about things like The Office where it was, you know, Ricky Gervais was seen as somebody that maybe invented mock doc, whereas she was doing it maybe 20 years previously and as seen on TV. It would be fascinating to know. I'm afraid I don't yeah. know what, what is, uh, the office. I know that she was, I mean, I can sort of tangentially answer that because Dinner Ladies came out in the same month as the Royal Family. And the Royal Family, while not a mock doc, was certainly uh, filmed without an audience. Um, and, you know, with just one camera. Uh, and it was in a very, very new style. And when it came out just a couple of weeks before the first episode of Dinner Ladies, Victoria thought, oh, my God, I have in an instant uh, just become old fashioned because I've written uh, something that looks like something could have been made in the 1970s. Uh, and and the office was just completely new. So she was actually rather downcast when that happened. Um, but she but, did. Uh, 
she did get to make the sitcom that she actually wanted to make because like, the support that she had in it, like, the BBC allowed her to film uh, twice uh, and the level of controls she had was such that she even did the audience warm-up, which I thought was unbelievable <laughs> that she would do that. Well, she liked to come out and introduce the characters and the actors and she, she you know, she was, uh, she was very adept at making do- jokes about Celia and, and Duncan and... Uh, uh, Maxine Peake, she, she liked joking about her being in, you know, having trained at RADA and now was doing Dinner Ladies. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I mean, why wouldn't she do the warm-up? Uh, who else would you want to do the warm-up for Dinner Ladies? Uh, and, and she could do it, you know, it was easy. I suspect it was as easy as falling off a log for her. The one time I went to see her, I mean, it just felt a, a Dinner Ladies uh, being recorded. It felt completely natural that she should be the person uh, telling us who all the characters were, etc. Do you have a favourite sketch or song? Uh, well, what's your go-to? I, I, ha- I have to answer this uh, speaking as a as her biographer because um, my, my tendency was to uh, look for the ways in which she mined her own life to tell her own, to, you know, to mind her life for comedy. Uh, and there's plenty of it uh, all the way through her work. I mean, the most... The most obviously autobiographical work of hers, I would say, is Pat and Margaret. Uh, that's full length uh, work. Or Housewife 49 is she wrote not long after the breakup of her marriage. And when she met the people she was going to make it with, she did say to them, I want to write about a marriage. Um, but the, my favourite, just because I think it encapsulates all of her genius, um, can I do a two-part answer because I also absolutely have a yeah <laughs> a, a favorite song. Um, that's it. Embarrassingly, I now can't remember the name of the damn song. But um, uh, uh, yeah, oh god, that's going to be awful. Uh, anyway, yeah, I've got a nominal aphasia on the song, but I'll get back to it. But, I did, but first of all, there's uh, swimming the swimmer channel. Yes, uh, that's fine. Which is which is it's very funny, but it is incredibly bleak. Yeah, uh, and. So it shows the two sides of Victoria's genius as a writer. It has a beautiful performance from Victoria. And it is, for me, speaking as her biographer, uh, the most autobiographical sketch she ever wrote, because it is about living with the consequences of relentless parental neglect, which is what Victoria had suffered as a child. Uh, so these, these two parents who are sitting on the sofa being interviewed by the, the off-camera uh, documentary maker and saying, who's saying, are you going to go and watch Chrissy swim the channel? And they say, oh no, we're going to go up to town and see if we can catch a show. And uh, and their daughter goes out, you know, with her duffel bag on her back, swimming out into the into the English channel, uh, never to be seen again. And um, it really is, uh, it's, it's a sketch about, it's called Swim the Channel, but it's really about sinking in the channel. And it's about a child who's sort of been dropped by her parents which was Victoria's experience. Um, it's interesting because she gets, I, I think for people that don't know her work that well, she tends to get put in that very cosy uh, Mrs. Brown's boys sort of um, category. Whereas she was very dark. Like her, her work was very introspective and there was a lot, there was a lot of darkness in it. Um, and as you said, that came from an upbringing uh, with so much neglect. Um, her mother was a very interesting character in your book, 
um, what, yeah. what you write about her, who she kind of returned to education. There seemed to be this rivalry between the two of them. Well, if so, I think it was unspoken, but, um, <laughs> but no, her mother had um, grown up in Manchester in a very, very uh, working class background. Um, she had, you know, her father was invalided in the First World War. Her mother went out to work in the, in the factory opposite. Uh, and she was the second oldest of a quite a large brood. And she had to, despite being the cleverest girl in her year, uh, had to leave school at 14. And so she was a frustrated uh, young woman whose education had not been completed. So when her youngest child at the age of 11 went to secondary school, she decided to resume her education as well. So so yes, their, um, their lives were kind of running in parallel, uh, I guess, or their education was running in parallel. But by the time uh, Victoria went to university, her mother had completed her degree. Um, and she went on to be a teacher herself. And the point of that was that Victoria, I mean, I found a, a couple of news stories from Bolton newspapers uh, from when Victoria was 11 and, and, and her mother, Helen, is saying, I'm sure all the family will rally round. And that's just not, and you know, help to, you know, sort of make the family home run smoothly. And it's just not how it happened. Um, and so Victoria, she had a father who was an insurance salesman, who, uh, to your point from earlier, he would have loved to have been a comedian, but did accidentally end up in in, uh, in comedy <laughs> instead. I mean, in insurance. But he would have loved to have been a scriptwriter, and he spent his evenings writing scripts and songs, and did write one episode of Coronation Street eventually. But so he he disappeared into his you know private world in the evening, and and Victoria's mother disappeared into her private world for much of much of her teenage years. So. So it was on that basis that she was abandoned. It's, I still haven't uh, remembered the name of the damn song that is my favourite. It's, it's uh, fine, we'll keep you here all favorite, day. But it is, <laughs> if I can remind you, Garoud, it's from one of those documentaries from As Seen on TV. It's a fantastic Mickey take of uh, the South Bank show uh, we're called Wither the Arts. Yeah, and oh. Celia Imri is a, uh, plays a reporter who goes to rehearsals of this, this musical um, of that uh, someone has written, um, uh, it's written by Marvy Hamlish, uh, and uh, no, Hamley Marvish, that's it, Hamley Marvish. And uh, he, uh, and it's being directed by someone who has decided that the character of Bessie Bunter needs to be played by a very, very thin actress. Yeah. Uh, and so the thin actress is Deborah Grant, uh, and she sings this absolutely beautiful song, which is a very funny uh, sort of piss take of a, of a, of a Marvin Hamlish song from uh, Chorus Line or something like that, but is actually also completely heartbreaking. Um, if you look up on YouTube, hope it's there, Wither the Arts, uh, well, Victoria Wood, that song is in there and I'm really I know in. that you will definitely remember it the minute this call ends. I know, Again, I know. <laughs> it'll annoy you all day. I could get on my laptop now and look it up, uh, but I, I think that be, might be a bit distracting for, for uh, uh, the audience. From going through all of the archive, um, had she not got ill, uh, we know that the, 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 she wanted to make a film, uh, but do you think she ever would have returned to stand-up? Or was there any inkling as to what she was going to do? Because that was always the thing with her. There was a, she was always a big surprise, the, the next thing that she did. She didn't like repeating herself. Uh, the reason why she gave up stand-up was really to do with the fact that, although she didn't, uh, speak about them directly uh, 
uh, she did use her family as as a sort of source material. And her daughter had said to her, her Grace, Grace, her daughter had said to her, aged about 13, I'm, I'm not sure I like the way you talk about me on stage. Uh, so she felt, well, I can't talk about Grace anymore. And then and then she talked about her marriage and, and the marriage ended. So she couldn't she couldn't talk about that. She didn't want to talk about divorce. Uh, she did do about a, li a little mini set as a, as a BAFTA celebration, but that was, and, and she enjoyed going on stage and sort of presenting things like the sort of jazz festival at the Barbican, you know, presenting yeah. things there. But, but she never, she, I don't think she ever would have gone on tour again. Um, she still had the performance bug a bit, but she found touring exhausting and lonely. Uh, so the big Victoria Wood does stand up thing, I think was that a was thing over. of the past. She had, and she didn't really like appearing on television anymore. She really enjoyed being a producer and even more than a producer, a director. And she had directed in theatre, you know, several times, uh, you know, in the in the from about two thousand and six when she when she took Acorn Antiques out on stage herself, she revived talent on stage. She she wrote uh, that day we sang for the stage and then uh, adapted it and directed it for the TV. So I think she would have gone on to do more directing. That movie we were talking about, Cakes on a Train, she was going to direct that. Uh, another thing she wanted to do was um, uh, the Miss Reed novels, which she loved, those kind of very quaint rural uh, series of, of uh, stories. She was she had the rights or rather a production company on her behalf had the rights to adapt them potentially for television. But I think her performing days were over. I think her directing days were very much in front of her. She, she really reached the heights, I felt, of performance when when she won the BAFTA for Housewife 49, because I always felt, as I said earlier, she had cast herself so often uh, as a supporting actress. Um, and then I remember, I think it was the BAFTA honours for Julie Walters when she gave a speech and she, there was a line in it that really jarred with me because she said something, she was crying. I think everyone was crying because, you know, they were all so emotional about some clip yeah. that had been shown and she said um we're actresses for god's sake uh we're not down the mines and i thought that was really interesting and it stuck with me for ages that she'd actually referred to herself as an actress because in all of the years that i'd seen her she'd always referred to herself as a writer or, or, or a comedian and I, I i think really she started to i don't know was it confidence or was it age but she really felt like she embraced the star role i think eventually uh, well, she definitely wanted to play that role herself, the, uh, the role of Nella Last in Housewife 49. She'd had that book sitting on her shelves for more than 20 years uh, and, you know, was waiting for the right moment to suggest it uh, as a drama. But um, I think the, uh, the, the lack of confidence about acting goes back to her time at Birmingham University where she did a drama course. Uh, and she was not, uh, you know, there were lots of people on that course, which was a bit of a mishmash. It wasn't quite academic. It wasn't quite practical. Um, there were other people on that course who were more identifiably actors, thespians. And she had applied to a couple of drama colleges, but not real drama colleges. And she just didn't have confidence in herself as, a, as, a, as an actress. And she thought there were other people who were just better than her. So, but but actually... I, I mean, aside from things like Swim the Channel, where she does give a very beautiful performance 
I think if you watch Pat and Margaret, her performance in that, for which she was also nominated for a BAFTA, that was 1994, uh, she gives a stunning performance in that. Uh, yeah. There's a moment in that which takes my breath away. Which, uh, I don't know if you remember the scenario where there are these two sisters who've been separated in childhood and one of them's gone on to be basically Joan Collins and one of them is, is working in a motorway uh, service station serving up chips. That's Margaret played by Victoria. And she goes on to a... Uh, she goes to watch this show, uh, a Scylla Black type show in which cis, uh, people are, it's like surprise, surprise, in which people are reunited who've been separated for a long time. And she is, you know, unbeknown to her, uh, about to be reunited with her sister. And she's sitting on the sofa. She comes down, pulled out of the audience. She comes down, she's sitting there and she realises that this sister that she hasn't seen for, I don't know, 30 years is, is there. And the look on her face yeah, it's, it's on YouTube. Just, just I would urge anyone who's watching to go and find Pat and Margaret on YouTube and, and you know, watch it all. But, but, but hold on that moment where Victoria is suddenly the shock of this moment is playing across her face. And you thought this woman is meant to be the greatest comedian uh, of our time. And, but the look on her face is just, she looks so lost and so confused. Uh, it's just extraordinary. So that, I mean that the the kernel of her brilliance as an actress was for me was there then uh, and in some of her sketches that she did. So it was no surprise when she was able to graduate to a genuinely serious role in Housewife Forty Nine, in which she had to do really kind of peel layers away and do lots of you know sort of it, heartbreaking stuff. It was really it was so, such a great performance. One of the times yeah. that she did repeat herself, and we would be absolutely remiss if we didn't hit on it was yeah. when she brought the West End, uh, she brought Acorn Antiques to the West End in what was, I think, one of the greatest nights I've ever had in the West End because I saw one of the early previews, I went over to see an early preview in the afternoon uh, and Victoria Wood played Mrs. Overall and then I enjoyed it so much, I stayed for the evening show and saw Julie Walters, so I got a double whammy in one day. And it was very interesting because I remember it, it was the early previews it was expensive. It was packed with Victoria Wood fans. And I remember she came to the stage door uh, and she was kind of frantic. It was really interesting because everyone was just showering her with these compliments. And she just kept saying, but we need to take 10 minutes off. What did you not like? You're all being very unhelpful. <laughs> um, I can believe that. I can absolutely believe that because, I mean, you know, she was very conscious of the fact that it was too long. And, you know, I, I didn't see both both stars performing in it uh, in the same day the way you did. But uh, I remember going to the press night, the press night, which turned out to be, relatively speaking, a disaster because, you know, it was, yeah, it was quiet. And, it was quiet and, people, and it was quiet and she was very downcast after that. But she was acutely aware of the fact it was too long. And, you know, I would agree with her. I thought it was too long. She's, when she did the... Um, uh, the, revived it uh, and took it out on tour, you know, without stars in it. She she decided to um, just do, uh, give it the cleanest cut imaginable and just chop it in half and get rid of the first half of the show. Uh, I wish I'd was, seen that because for me, it was the, one of the most perfect nights I've ever seen. I just thought it was such a yeah. brilliant show. Uh, and when she signed my program, I do remember saying, uh, she asked how to spell my name. Uh, which is G-A-R-O-I-D. And she said, oh, that sounds like hemorrhoid. And I remember thinking, this is possibly the most perfect moment I've ever had. (laughs) Um, 
But that was hemorrhoids were a favourite word of hers, of course. It's, a, it's an, in, an intrinsically funny word. But what she did say about that, um, about rewriting it, was she said, I remember her saying to me when she was doing the, the second version of Acorn Antiques, I don't have to do a song for Neil Morrissey. Um, yeah. So she didn't have to write for all the stars that had been stuffed into into the cast. Yeah, she seemed quite. Um, she did seem quite annoyed about the way it was shaping up. Like she to put a she put a song in for Celia Emery, which then got cut. Um, yeah, I you know Celia did tell me the story about how she was. She got she sort of when she went along to the rehearsals and it, it was gnawing away at her that her character, while she was you know integral to the show, Miss Babs, didn't actually have her own song. So she plucked up the courage to ask Victoria, and it did take courage to ask her. And Victor, I, I actually, although I didn't put this in the book, uh, I was there. I went along. <clears throat> I was writing a feature about Acorn Antiques for uh, a newspaper, and I went along to watch a rehearsal that morning. Oh wow! Uh, a dance rehearsal, which Victoria was um, sort of in charge of. Uh, no, Stephen Meir was in charge of the dance rehearsal, and Victoria was rehearsing her bit. So she was doing uh, the dancing as Mrs. Overall. And then I was talking to her at the end and we were walking out into the car park afterwards, just just uh, her and me. And she just said, I've got to go write a song now. Um, and uh, and she said one of the cast, I've never said this publicly before. So uh, she said one of the cast once, you know, has asked for a song and she rolled her eyes. And I tried to guess who it was. And I did actually guess who it was. Um, and she went away and wrote that song. It's a great little song. It's only about 90 seconds or two minutes. And, uh, and by Monday, it was slotted into the show. And Celia said to me, I think it was only because I had that song that uh, I was considered for an Olivier Award. Which, which, which won. won. Wow. Um, before we let you go, uh, the book is incredible, it's brilliant. But what's very interesting is if you do it on audiobook, I did it in tandem. <laughs> I've got the actual copy on the floor there, but I did it on audiobook as well. Um, is that all of, a lot of Victoria's friends read chapters. Um, yeah. That must have been a very interesting project to be part of. Well, uh, my contracts with the publisher stipulated that there would be an audiobook and I didn't know when I started how long the book would be or how much I would find out. And I'd, I just need to say very briefly, Garod, that, that one of the reasons why the book expanded and became uh, a portrait of an artist for me, a biography of an artist, not of a celeb, was that I was able, through asking people over and over again, if they had any correspondence, to gain access to the thing that, for me, really makes it the... A, a story that that has Victoria's voice at the very heart of it, that loads of people gave me her correspondence, including one of the readers on the book, Jane Wymark, her, uh, the actress who was Victoria's friend at Birmingham University, and and they corresponded, for, you know, off and on for forty years. Uh, and Jane gave me everything, uh, so I've got letters uh, from Jane, uh, from Victoria to Jane, describing what it was like to make as seen on TV or to write it or to write dinner ladies, uh, and indeed going through to emails that she was sending her as she fell ill. So going back to the audiobook, I was thinking, I don't know who they're going to get to read this, because every, everyone that you would want to read it is in it, uh, this book. So, uh, so and they, there can't be a, a sort of eggy moment where 
uh, Celia Imri is quoting herself uh, and saying, says <laughs> Celia Imri. So uh, the publishers hit on this brilliant idea of having a multi-voice reading. And initially they thought of one voice per chapter, but they're 25, 26 chapters. So that was too many voices. So they went down to kind of about eight, eight or nine. I think we've got 10 in the end, including me, because uh, I read the intro and, and the last chapter. And um, the uh, I was they gave me free reign to cast it. Uh, so I said, well, I'd like these people if we can possibly get them. And we got, apart from one person who was working, uh, we got everyone we wanted. And uh, and it was just fascinating, um, you know, sort of talking, talking to them. A lot of them had questions about how do you pronounce this? What the hell do you mean by this? Duncan Preston was very funny saying, uh, you know, I don't know what you mean. God, your sentences are bloody long, he kept on saying to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so... Uh, and he, his readings are wonderful, I think. I love his readings. It's, I mean, I love them all. And I was there for some of the readings. I went, I worked quite closely with Jane Wymark because she wanted to be directed. And uh, she said, well, will you, can, can, can you direct me? So I, I kind of, I didn't direct her, but I helped her with them. And uh, I went along to Kate Robbins's recordings. And so I was there when she was at the end of the As Seen on TV chapter, which she does, there are about half a dozen or, or nine lines of the kind of the most kind of indelible lines from as seen on TV, which she did in all the voices. Yeah, which uh, is very they were impressive. done. And so it was wonderful just sitting there with Kate and saying, no, I think it should be a bit more like this. And she couldn't quite remember how certain lines were said. Uh, so that was fascinating being involved in that process. It's definitely a book that you need to get both, I think, uh, particularly for there's a surprise, I think, at the end of the audio book, which I think is just absolutely magical moment um and it was yes well that again was something that i was i went to the estate and said please can we top and tail this with victoria we've got everyone's voice in this apart from hers so can we can we start with her and can we finish with her that doesn't give everything away that gives only a little bit away but garo before before we finished i think you need to admit what you admitted to me is how many times you saw Aquan Antiques the musical. I saw it five times. <laughs> <laughs> five times. And one of those times, actually, that first time, I was due to fly over, see a matinee and go home. Uh, but uh, because I saw Victoria, I thought, oh, I really yeah. have to see Julie Walters. So it did cost me an extra flight and a night in a hotel. So I, as a, I think as a student back then, I was broke <laughs> for quite a while. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that, it was worth every penny. That it was is, amazing. That is devotion. It was devotion, my God. Yeah, it was brilliant. And one of the ones I saw was the last performance of it in the West End, uh, where Victoria Wood uh, went on and played somebody. She uh, played, she was the lady that wheeled the pram across uh, in one of the dream sequences. Uh, is, this in the, is this in the Haymarket? Yes. So the last, right, okay. Yeah. I should have talked to you, Garo, before I, uh, before I researched this book. I would have found out a lot more. <laughs> Look, there's easily a second book in this. Absolutely. Uh, Jasper, thank you so much for your time today. It was amazing to talk to you and congratulations on your book. It's, uh, as a devoted fan, it's exactly what I needed. Thank you very much indeed. I really enjoyed it. That was Jasper Reese and his biography of Victoria Wood entitled Let's Do It is out now on paperback. You can follow Jasper on social media and his links are in the information for this episode. You can also follow me. I'm at Garode Farrelly on Instagram and Twitter and sometimes Facebook. I'll be back with new fascinated episodes very soon. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 
This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Free Kids Workshops are back in stores at the Home Depot. On the first Saturday of every month from 9am to 12pm, bring your little ones to a local Home Depot for a hands-on learning experience that kids love. Find more kid-friendly projects and kids' workshop kits at homedepot.com slash kids. For 25 years, the Home Depot has been building confident future doers with its free kids' workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Lost supplies last, U.S. only.